really very easy to state a mission, but it's much more difficult to stick with a mission. Harvard University was founded in 1636. Here was its short, succinct mission statement, to know God and Jesus Christ. It was a university that would only employ Christian professors. And yet over centuries it strayed and drifted from that mission to the by the time in 1987 the president of Harvard University is willing to admit that is not their mission and that they would never return to that mission. Really glad to have some Christian university people with us today because any organization, it's hard to stick with the mission. Uh, even a secular company like American Apparel was started in 1987 because most of our manufacturing jobs for apparel were going overseas, and they wanted things to be made in America, and they boomed and they exploded until they decided to change their strategy and went off mission and began to have the most sexually explicit advertisement that anybody had. That's American Apparel. And then here's the one that really, really gets to me, is a church. I love this story about the Church of God Grill in Atlanta, Georgia. Charles Swindle was a pretty famous preacher, and Charles Swindle was um, in Atlanta to speak once. He got in his hotel early, and he wanted to find something to eat. And so he just went what you do years ago to the Yellow Pages. He's reading the Yellow Pages for restaurants, and he reads this really weird name for a restaurant, the Church of God Grill. Curiosity gets the best of him. So he calls the place. He said, how in the world did you get this name, Church of God Grill? Is this a church? They go, well, we started off that way. And we didn't have much money. We had to pay our bills. So we started grilling some chicken on the side. And everybody loved the chicken. And before long, we're grilling a lot of chicken. And we need to grill chicken on Sundays. And so, no, we're not a church anymore. But we just kept the name, the Church of God Grill. Can you believe that? It's crazy. And yet it's so easy for us to drift. In fact, many people would call this the inevitable temptation is mission drift. Very few organizations or people are willing or able to stick with it. It's natural. Because if, if you just do what you naturally do, you're not going to go in the right direction. Sometimes I say, well, I just want to live my life naturally. You know what that means? That means that you are going to float in the wrong direction because you're a natural sinful man. We only go in the right direction intentionally. And that's what's so amazing about Jesus Christ. I mean, he's a guy who stated his mission, lived his mission, and never suffered from what we would call today mission drift. If you're our guest today, we're studying through the Gospel of Luke. We're getting toward the end. In Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, Jesus gave his mission. He said this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That statement is packed. But what Jesus is saying is that my mission is to come reach the people who know they have problems and who need God and will come to God. That's where my focus is. And he kept that focus all the way to dying for people like you and me. In fact, in Luke chapter 9 is when Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus, here's the key word, resolutely set 
out for Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem. He knows what's coming, but he knows to fulfill his mission, he's got to face it. And then when you get to our chapter for today, Jesus has boiled his mission statement down to one very succinct line. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus doesn't suffer from mission drift. As we get to Luke chapter 19, I want us to identify why he didn't. Because Luke chapter 19, you got you to get the setting here. Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. He's on the outskirts in Jericho. He's coming in through this chapter. He's coming in to face his death. And yet even in the middle of this, he was able to stay. What the opposite of mission drift is, is to be mission true. So, so what do you know? What happens when you're mission true? Let me give you four points this morning. Number one, you know your mission true by what you do. You see, so often mission drift happens when we run up to obstacles and problems. As an organization, you've got to make a big decision that might make people mad. If you stay true to your mission, you might lose some people. They may not give you the money that you want them to give you. And so it, it's normally during a tough time. Here, here's the way the American theologian Mike Tyson put it. Just want to make sure y'all know who Mike Tyson is. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And we do. We have a plan until we hit difficult times. And yet Jesus never left his mission. Even in the foot of the cross, he's still seeking one more person. One more person for God. Go to Luke chapter 19. Let's start in verse 1 and watch this incredible story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector. I mean, everybody hated tax collectors. They're helping the Romans. They're ripping you off. And this dude's not just a tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. And, of course, he's wealthy. Now, we remember Luke has a lot to say about what Jesus thinks about wealth. Well, just a couple chapters before this, we read, it is harder, Jesus says, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through an eye of a needle. But he says nothing's impossible with God. And then the chapter before this, we've seen the rich young ruler who can't give up his wealth. But today we see a man who does the impossible. Verse 3, he wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him. Since Jesus was coming that way. Somehow this man, who's filthy rich and very miserable, has heard about Jesus. He's gone down this dead end, man. He thought, man, if I can just get enough money, no matter who I've got to step over, man, I'm going I'm to be okay. And all of us have gone down those dead end roads that what you thought would bring life and joy actually didn't. And that's where Zacchaeus is. And so he hears about this guy named Jesus who's radically different than anybody's ever heard of. He gets ahead. He, he embarrasses himself. A, a man in this day would not be caught climbing a tree in the middle of the city. He climbs this tree and he's waiting on Jesus. Verse 5, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said to him, Zacchaeus. I always wonder here how he knew Zacchaeus's name. Maybe he's like Casey. He was wearing a name tag. I don't know. But I don't know how he knew Zacchaeus's name. So he says, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Only time in the Gospels where Jesus ever invites himself to someone's house. 
So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now, you've got a man who's desperate for Jesus. That's normally when we change. It's when we've been down enough dead ends to know, you know what, what I'm trying is not working. Plan A has been a failure. Plan B has been a failure. I better try something else. Maybe it's Jesus. And maybe that's where you are today. I'm telling you, Jesus is the way. Zacchaeus knew it. And Zacchaeus has this life-changing experience. Now, first of all, the church cops have got to get mad, right? All the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be a guest of sinners. You see, Jesus knew it would get him criticism. By the end of the chapter, they're going to try to kill him because he's hanging out with the wrong people. But that was his mission. And then we see a changed life. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Now, please understand this. Zacchaeus is not saved because he gave up his possessions. His dedication to give up his possessions and restore what he's stolen is not what saves him. It's simply evidence that he's been changed. And he gives back beyond what the law would call him to do. And then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because this man too, boy, the Pharisees hated this line, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. My friends, Zacchaeus was desperate for Jesus. He sought Jesus out. But you must see from this story, Jesus was seeking Zacchaeus before he ever climbed that tree. Jesus was seeking him because he's lost. Now, lost in the Bible is not some kind of big-time theological religious word. It simply means what you and I know. Lost means to be out of place. And Zacchaeus, despite of all his wealth and all his success and all his condos, Life's just not right. And Jesus says, I've come to help you find life, and I've come to find, help you find eternal life so you won't be lost forever. So first of all, you know your mission true by what you do. By what you do. We do what we really care about. Then number two, you know your mission true by what you say. And Jesus is very creative all through Luke in expressing his mission statement. Because Jesus knows what you and I know. Often people aren't listening. And you, you can say the same thing over and over and they don't really hear you. One of my favorite stories about this was when President uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was in office, he hated reception lines, which we had to do all the time. And, and people would come through the reception line, he'd have to greet them. And, and what he knew was nobody was really paying attention. So he decided to try an experiment. So all these ambassadors, important people are coming through the reception line. He shakes their hand and he says these words. I murdered my mother this morning. I murdered my mother this morning. I murdered my mother this morning. And he said, everybody kept saying, well, that's great. Great to meet you. Good deal, man. And so he repeated it. Only at the end of the line, the ambassador from Bolivia, of all places, comes by, and FDR says, I murdered my mother this morning, and he quickly retorts, I knew she had it coming to her. Because <laughs> we're all bad about losing out on what's said. And so now Jesus is going to tell our mission in a really crazy way. In fact, we get to a parable I've never had a good handle on, the parable of the ten minas, okay? 
And, and, and you probably know about Matthew's parable, Matthew 25, called the parable of the talents. We're familiar with that. And uh, so show the contrast, if you would, with me. Now we get to the parable of the minas. Now, the minas, it's, it's a different parable. I always thought it was the same parable, and that Luke just doesn't tell it as good as Matthew. He just sort of messes up a good story. It's sort of like, you know, getting a Whopper Jr. instead of getting a Whopper. How in the world do you call that stinking hamburger a Whopper? It's just not, okay? You guys don't look very sympathetic. Do not order a Whopper Jr. And so it, I always thought that's just, this is just the junior story of it. But the truth is, they're two different stories. The parable of the talents was told in Jerusalem. The parable of the minas was told in Jericho. The parable of the talents, everybody received different amounts, five, two, and one. The parable of the minas, everybody gets ten minas. A mina was worth a third of a year's wages. They get a, a bunch of money. They all get the same thing. And so, here's the difference. The parable of the talents is about being faithful with our gifts, all right? I love that. The parable of the minas is about being fruitful with the gospel. You see, we've all been given different, different gifts, but we've all been given the same treasure, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, in the minas, what Jesus is saying is, what are you going to do with this gospel? And so the king gives the ten minus, he goes away, he comes back, and let's watch what happens beginning in verse 16. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied, because you've been trustworthy in a very small matter. Take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. The way they handled the money determined their realm of influence. Then another servant came and said, Sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. Now, the parable here is of God being the master. The guy doesn't understand God here. But God plays along with the story. Look at the next verse. His master replied, okay, replied, okay, I'll judge you by your own words. That was a tough master. And then he says, you wicked servant. You know, we think about wickedness as murder or rape or whatever. Jesus says, to hide the gospel is wickedness. Okay. You knew, did you, that I'm a hard man taking out what I do not put in and reaping what I do not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have at least collected it with interest? Why did you just go hide it? Why didn't you at least put it in the bank? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Now, with our sense of fairness, that sounds wrong. And the people around, they thought it sounded wrong too. So they say, sir, he already has 10. Jesus replied, I tell you that to everyone who is, more will be given. But as for the one who had nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Here's Jesus' principle. When you handle little things God gives you well, he's going to give you more. Here's a sentence I like. Reward for fruitful work is more influence. 
The people who take the gospel and who use it are given more realms, more cities of influence. Have you ever noticed that? A lot of times, you know, if we want to point, point out evangelistic people at Landmark, we sort of always point out sort of the, the same people. It's like they're always bringing somebody to church. They're always baptized. I mean, how, I mean, why is it the same person? Because, you know what, they've been faithful to the gospel in a little bit, and so who are you going to put in charge of more? The person who's faithful. Why would God put us who bundle the gospel up on our own and give it to us when all he knows is we're probably going to do the same thing? So fruitful work brings more influence. So you know your mission true by what you do. You know your mission true by what you say. And number three, you know your mission true by what you weep over. Here's the story gets really cool. Jesus does now enter Jerusalem. He, he takes a little pony, a little donkey, excuse me. Donkey's never been ridden. It's pure, unadulterated, never set on not defiled. So Jesus rides a donkey into town, which is pretty significant here. It's prophecy. To ride a donkey was to come in peace. To ride a horse was to come as a mighty warrior. Jesus comes to Jerusalem in peace. And the people are so excited, man, they put out what we'd call the red carpet. They throw all their cloaks on the ground, and Jesus walks in. And they're all praising God, Hosanna in the highest. I mean, they're screaming it. And the Pharisees are so upset. They say to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Oh, here we are, and these guys are causing a ruckus here. They're praising you. We know you're a fake Messiah because a fake Messiah wouldn't hang out with the people you hang out with. And so would you please quiet your disciples down? And this is one of my favorite things that Jesus ever said. He says, as he approached Jerusalem, and, oh, excuse me, go back here. They keep, if they keep silent, he says, the stones will cry out. Isn't that cool? Okay, guys, even if I can do what you want me to do and shut up my disciples from praising me, this is so awesome and God is so awesome, the rocks are going to start praising me. It's like if we came in here one Sunday morning, man, and this place is going crazy and everybody's worshiping and some of you think we've gone charismatic, you know, and just all this is going on. And someone says, well, buddy, preacher, could you please calm these people down? They're going way too far for me. And I go, you know what? I could calm them down. But if I did, these walls are going to start praising God. God's going to be praised. And so he comes into the city. So Jesus is in the city. And then here's what the Scripture says in verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Now, why is he weeping? Three times the Gospels, Jesus weeps. Now, if I were Jesus... I would be weeping over myself. He knew what Jerusalem and the cross meant. And so if ever Jesus had a time to be a little selfish, he'd go, you know what? I know you guys are having a big time praising me, but I just, I got to stop and weep because it's going to be bad. My friends, Jesus is not weeping over himself. Jesus is weeping over this city. Why? Because God visited this city and they missed him. God walked down their street, and they thought he was an imposter. They missed the Son of God. And Jesus knew. Jesus was smart enough to know these same crowds that right now, in just a few hours, in these same crowds that are screaming and praising me, will be screaming, not Hosanna, but crucify him. 
And Jesus weeps because they're lost. And he weeps because by AD 70, Jerusalem will be destroyed. Can I ask you? Because this is the question I woke up with this morning. It's driving me crazy. What do I weep over? When's the last time I wept over our city? When's the last time I wept over the lost? When's the last time you... Think about this last week. What were the things you've been upset about? Now, here's what I'll confess to you. I've not been upset about people being lost. I have been upset about some things, but not that. And you know your mission true by what you weep over. And then we bring just the end of the story. Look at verse 45 and 46. Still some emotion, but even more emotion. Verse 45, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. You know your mission true by what you're angry about. Why is Jesus so angry? Because he's come to the temple, the place where people should connect with God, the place where people should have a relationship with God. And it's nothing but religious ritual. The court of the Gentiles is the place where they've, they've taken over and made a market. My friends, guys, the court of the Gentiles is where the Jewish people were supposed to be evangelistic. That's the way, that's where the Gentiles were supposed to see the goodness of God, and be led to this God. It was never just for the Jews. But the very place the Gentiles should be wrought to God had been made into a crooked market. You see, all these folks from out of town had to to offer sacrifices. So they set their market up. Run the Gentiles out. They're not going to see God. Set their market up. Charge exorbitant prices. Rip people off. And so Jesus is so stinking angry because the place where God was supposed to dwell and people could know him had been the place that turned people off. And don't get mad at me for this analogy. But too often, the church, the very place that people should be connected with God is the place that turns them off. I heard a man this morning say, I'm coming to Landmark, I'm checking this out, but church is really hard for me because of what he had been through. And my friends, I'm ready for some of us to get angry about this. You know what makes me mad? I see people get mad in church, but when have we ever got mad about people being lost? I see people get ticked off because they don't get their way. But when do we get angry because people aren't coming to God? That's the kind of righteous anger. Jesus was never angry because he didn't get his way. He was angry because people were shut out from God. And I'm telling you, you want to find out what your mission is, what are you mad about, and what are you sad about? This is so convicting to me. So, let me give you some practical points. You could apply this to your business, to your home, to your school. How do you avoid mission drift? Really quickly. Mission true organizations consistently state their mission. You just, you just keep saying it. That's why we say every Sunday the Landmark Church exists to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. Our vision is 
to be a family that helps people struggling with their problems. It, it, it sounds like Jesus. Number two, mission-true organizations differentiate between mission and method. We're not saying today that mission-true organizations never change. They have to change. But they never change to the point where they lose their core identity. It doesn't mean they're unchanging. It simply means the mission doesn't change. Landmark Church was formed in 1974 by a group of people that mortgaged their houses to buy a building on the Atlanta Highway because they wanted there to be an evangelistic Church of Christ in East Montgomery. And that's where it was. We have never lost that vision. But if you went to Landmark in 1974, and now you showed up here in 2018, this would look very different. They had lights in 1974. I mean, it's a crazy thing. I mean, it just, it just, you change your methods to match your mission. And then third thing, mission true organizations select mission true leaders. That's why if you're in an organization, you've got a board. You better be very selective of who's on that board. That's why churches should be very selective of who's shepherds, who's elders. I mean, our church here, because of division in the past, has been very selective about shepherds and elders. Why? Because you all experience it. You get a couple guys in there who don't share the vision, and you can destroy it. That's why we're so excited about our new staff member coming in a few weeks, Dan Burgess, because our first interview with him on Skype, it was so clear he had a heart for people in the lost. Next point. Mission true organizations celebrate mission accomplished moments. You see, you know what you're excited about by what you celebrate about. I was at a church not too long ago, really good church, had a great time preaching there, nice people. Big, big, big church. But they make it very plain in any setting that their mission is to have peace. Peace. We, we, we don't do anything. We just, we got to have peace. And they built a really big church on that mission. Not reached a lot of lost people, but built a big church. And guys, if peace is your mission, then you never upset anybody about anything. But peace was not Jesus' mission. Jesus came to reach people. As a church, my friends, our mission's got to be bigger than keeping you happy and me happy because we'll never do that. We'll never reach people. You see, you know what your mission is by what you celebrate and by what you measure. For instance, most of us are big college football fans, right? How many of you know your favorite team's record right now? Be okay if I stated mine? I won't do it. Okay. But we all, we all know our favorite team's record, good or bad. We, we know that. I want to ask you a question. How many people in here know how many people have been baptized at Landmark this year? So on your Thursday email, it's 17. You know your mission by what you celebrate, by what you look after. So today, my challenge for you is to ask this question, is Landmark Mission true? Churches 
drift easier than any other organizations, I think. And so today I want to, I've been giving you a test this service, okay? So I want to invite my, my newfound friend, Kenny Murphy, to meet me on stage here. Kenny, if you'd come up here. Many of you know a guy comes to church here quite often named Hollywood. I said, Hollywood, I need somebody to show up at church on Sunday, just walk around this place, and then I want him to report to me how we do as a church. So I picked up Kenny early this morning, and Kenny's been hanging out in the lobby. I said, make sure you smoke your cigarettes out on the sidewalk. I think you took me up on that a few times, didn't you? And um, Kenny, here's what I want to know. I mean, this, I, and I, I've tried to avoid you, so I didn't do it. So tell me how you've been treated. Real nice. Real nice. Amen. I enjoy everybody. Say it again. I enjoy everybody. So, so tell me what's made you feel nice. Talking, conversation, that's it. You drank a little coffee this morning? Oh, plenty of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No doubt. Now, I'm so glad to hear that, Kenny. I did this same thing 22 years ago. And we had a guy come in here and one person talked to him. So I can't thank you enough for being here. Because you know what this gospel is about that we're studying here, Kenny? Jesus is inclusive of everybody. I mean, you look out here, we're a predominantly white church. That's not the way we want to be, but that's sort of the way we are, man. But Jesus wants everybody, all right? Jesus doesn't want just the rich people, but he wants everybody, man. And so when somebody like you comes in here, we get tested whether we're like Jesus. And thank you so much for blessing us. Thank you, brother. Give him a hand. So let's close with this question. We've talked about Lamar. We've talked about Jesus. He's mission true, like Stephen said, all the way to the cross. Uh, let me ask you this question. Are you mission true? Am I? And here's the way you can find it out by looking through Luke chapter 19. What do you do? How much of your time is going to seek and save the lost? What do you talk about? What do you say? What do you weep about? And what makes you angry? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty convicted. I consider myself pretty much a person who loves to reach out. But I don't weep about it. And I'm not near angry about it like I should be. Somebody in this church needs to get angry about only 17 people being baptized. So here's what I'm going to invite you. If you want to come to the front row and write something out, we'll pray over you. But I want to do something we do periodically here. We've got some beautiful steps around this stage. If today you just want to put yourself in a submissive posture before God, and you just want to come pray to God and ask God to to make you mission true. If you want to confess to God that that you have drifted, and you don't want to write something down, if you want to write something down, great. But if, if you don't, you just want to come and before you leave this place today in just a few moments and submit yourself to the mission of God. I'm telling you, you're going to be so much more fulfilled and happy. And I'm going to be when we become mission true. But you can't become mission true until as an organization you're willing or as a person to go, you know what, we drifted. Our company's not doing what it was made to do. Our school's not doing what it was formed to do. Our church is not living up the mission of Jesus. So today, if you'd like to just surrender yourself physically before God on these steps, these steps are open for you to pray. Or if you'd like to write down something for us to pray about, please come while we stand and sing.